We have an obligation of speed. We will move as quickly as possible to bring clarity to the new rules of finance. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. Today is Tuesday, August 3rd. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Robert Smith. And that was Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, you heard at the top, talking about the new financial reform bill yesterday. On the show today, we have a story about what happens when the U.S. government tries to rein in an entire industry and fails miserably. Not derivatives, not credit default swaps. We are talking about something maybe even more economically important, alcohol. First, our Planet Money Indicator. Today's Planet Money Indicator comes to us from our own Jacob Goldstein. (laughs) He's not here. Yeah, he's not here. The indicator, though, is six pounds, eight ounces, which explains why he's not here. That's the weight of the newest member of Jacob's family, baby Julia. Congratulations, Jacob and his wife, Alexandra. You know, there is an actual economic reason for bringing this up. I was looking at a Pew study that showed that in 2008, the number of babies declined in states that were hardest hit by the recession. So basically, the more the foreclosures went up, the more the baby rate went down. So we had two babies here. Alex's baby, now Jacob's baby. Out of a staff of six. Yeah, that's a baby boom. So I think we can confidently say the recession is over. Yeah. All right. Good. So today we're going to be talking about prohibition. Robert, I brought this. You have a mason jar filled with a clear white liquid. Yep, this is, um, well, here, I'll just pour you a little bit. Oh, it's thick. All right. Me? Okay. So since we're recording this at noon and since this is probably in violation of NPR policy, I recommend just taking a taste. Okay. It's got kind of a a bouquet of turpentine. (laughs) Um, Um... uh, it's it, it, gasoline taste. That's what it is. Uh, a little bouquet of hazelnut, too. <laughs> this is uh, formerly known as moonshine. This batch is legal. But economically, moonshine, alcohol in general, it has an unusual characteristic, which is demand for it is very strong. It is what economists call inelastic, which means you can tax it. People won't change their drinking habits much. It turns out, as we learned during Prohibition, you can ban it. And people still don't change their drinking habits very much. Yeah. So alcohol is inelastic. So is the gas you put in cars and coffee. You know, if you need coffee in the morning, you will pay a lot of money for it. But most other commodities are elastic. The demand changes. You know, for me, it's movies, personally. If you raise the price of movies a couple of bucks, I'm going to stop going. In fact, I don't even go to 3D movies because they cost a fortune now. I'm glad I'm not your kid, man. Anyway, alcohol is different, right? So today on the podcast, we're going to show you how different it is, how the power of an inelastic good changed government, changed our tax code, and coaxed a future president into undermining the very constitution he would swear to uphold. Stay tuned. <laughs> All right. So the story begins actually in Georgia. I was down there doing a piece for This American Life, and I ran into a woman named Sylvia Bishop Wright. She works for the local paper, and she lives in an area called The Cove, which is kind of down off back roads. And she told me about one guy in particular who used to drink moonshine there during Prohibition. Yeah, not just a guy. He was soon to be the president of the United States, FDR. When Roosevelt was coming down here, he especially liked the moonshine in the cove. Roosevelt liked moonshine. 
they call it stump juice because they that had it, you know, in the old stumps. So in, in a tree, in a tree stump. Mm-hmm, in a tree stump, they just hide it down there and cover it up. Am I telling things I shouldn't be telling? No. <laughs> I told her no, 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 and then I thought, well. You know, we did write prohibition into the Constitution. <laughs> FDR would later swear to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And later she left me this voicemail. David, hey, this is Sylvia at the newspaper. And you know how you get to thinking about things. You know, when we were talking about the um, the booze, you know, the stunt juice and all, and about how Roosevelt liked it. But I'm telling you, I don't want anything said about Roosevelt that would be wrong, these folks down here fight you about Franklin D. Roosevelt. So people in this part of Georgia love Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I called Sylvia back. I figured I owed it to her and to Roosevelt to try and confirm this, see if it was true. I went to where FDR stayed when he was in Georgia. It's a little pine cottage that people call it the Little White House. FDR liked the springs in the area. The place is called Warm Springs, Georgia. Remember, FDR had polio. He was paralyzed from the waist down. But in the springs, he could float in the water and do basically physical therapy. So I I asked people at the museum, the Little White House is a museum now, I said, "Um, did FDR drink moonshine? And they said, yeah, legend had it that FDR drank moonshine, but they didn't know if it was true. So the Park Service woman gave me a map, and she circled this unnamed road, and she said, that's the cove. That's where FDR supposedly got his moonshine. So I got in the car, and I drove there. And I found a guy sitting on his porch who told me, I don't know, but you should, you know who might know? Aunt Nee. There's this woman everyone calls Aunt Nee. And she's the last living daughter of a man who was FDR's favorite fiddle player. So I drove over this little mountain, and then on the left, there was this white farmhouse. And I went up, and I found her. Her niece let me in, a woman named Linda Carpenter. Hello there. Hey, Curly Burly. Here she is sitting. Aunt Nee. What you doing? Working a puzzle. Aunt Nee's real name is Cornelia Wright Newman. She is hard of hearing, so the way the interview would work is I would ask a question in what I thought was a loud voice, and then Linda would shout it out even louder. How old are you, ma'am? How old are you? How old are you? How old am I? I'm, uh... 88 years no, old. No, you're 90. You're 90, going on 91. I'll be, nine, I'll be, no, yeah, that's right. I'll be, I'm 90. You're going on uh, 91. Yeah. You'll be 91 in August, sure. Yeah. Anthony told me, yes, she met President Roosevelt when she was a little girl. FDR loved her father's fiddle playing. So Sylvia told me that FDR used to come here to the Cove to buy moonshine. Uh. Did FDR come to the cove to buy moonshine? Oh, to buy moonshine? Yeah, he come down there to Uncle Charlie's old store, Gilbert store, down there. And uh, 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 that's where he met Daddy. did, Did he buy moonshine? Did FDR buy moonshine there? Did he buy moonshine at Uncle Charlie's old store? Uh-huh. After yeah, yeah. He tried to, uh, he was over there one time when uh, he come by. He, he was over there to get his groceries from Uncle Charlie's. And uh, he stopped and he found out where Daddy lived and he know he played the fiddle, you know. But, but, and he come on yeah. over there. Yeah. 
But 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 he bought Moonshine also. Moonshine. Uh, F- FDR FDR bought Moonshine there. I don't know if he did or not. I don't know. You don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know either. Okay. Cause I was a little bit of girl. I don't know if FDR bought Moonshine or not. I don't know either. He didn't get it at my house. I love it, David. You're like uh, one of these, you know, investigators, government investigators coming, searching for the still out in the woods, and she won't reveal where it is. Do you think that she actually knew or not? Or Someone there told me that when they bought their land, they found like a half dozen old stills out in the woods. They're still <laughs> out there, these things. Clearly, in Aunt Nee's house, drinking was wrong at the time, though, right? And And that was the logic behind Prohibition. Look... It's harmful. Let's just pass a law against it. Yes, but they were up against that unstoppable force of economics, the inelastic good. You can tax it, you can ban it, but people still want it. I talked with Bruce Yandel, professor of economics emeritus at Clemson University. It turns out once prohibition was passed, people did not stop drinking. Well, there's an estimate that there were twenty-five to 30,000 speakeasies in New York City in the early 20s, for example, just operating away. In the city? In the city, I don't. I, I'm not sure there are that many bars now. <laughs> Maybe the industry has gone down. It may have been more competitive, but a very efficient industry developed. Illicit industry developed during this time. Inelastic demand. So Bruce Andel says people have actually studied what happened during Prohibition. It turns out beer consumption did go down because it was easier to police. Authorities would smash the barrels to make a big show and the beer would go running down the street. But spirits and moonshine, that was much easier to hide. So consumption of spirits and moonshine actually went up. You could stick a fifth of Canadian in a boot and delivered at a speakeasy without being seen. And so the higher the concentration of alcohol in a beverage, the better its chances during prohibition. When you look at consumption before and during and following prohibition, in terms of market share, you see that spirits made out like a bandit, (laughs) to to coin a phrase that fits here. So moonshine moonshine did well. And moonshine did well. This is what economists call a substitution good. You can't get beer, you switch to something else that serves the same purpose. When you talk to Bruce Yandel, it actually seems like a miracle that Prohibition passed at all. Not just because people like to drink alcohol, but the government liked it too. The government liked to tax it. For many, many years prior to 1920, the federal government's principal source of revenue was the alcohol tax. Uh, From... Uh, The late 1800s to the mid-1900s, alcohol taxes for the federal government represented as much as three-fourths of federal revenue. That seems seems incredible to me. That tells me either the taxes were very high or that we drank a lot or both. Well, and uh, and the other thing it tells you is that our federal government was very small in in terms of its expenditures. (laughs) Or or that we didn't tax tax much else than alcohol, and that's why it was three-quarters, yeah. That's right. And this makes prohibition all the more surprising. I mean, how do you ban an industry that's propping up the U.S. government? Well, you need another source of revenue. Ah, clearly. You know how people always point to the 18th Amendment as establishing prohibition, 18th Amendment to the Constitution? You actually got to look two amendments higher on the list, the 16th Amendment, which provides for, sorry if this is giving you flashbacks to history class, provides for income tax. The income tax, a revolutionary economic idea at the time. You don't just tax things at the ports or in the saloons. You go around to everyone and collect tax based on income. 
crazy idea, difficult to pull off, never happened. But it turns out it works. It works so well that politicians think, hey, uh, you want to ban alcohol? Well, we can live without the revenue. We'll just raise that income tax a little bit. Yeah. Bad timing. <laughs> 1929, stock market crash. We have the beginning of the Great Depression. No one has much money. The income tax thing is not working out so well. And lawmakers are looking at alcohol, the thing that used to bring in all that revenue, and watching it instead make a lot of money for mobsters. Luckily, for those of you who drink, there is a moonshine drinker running for the presidency. Alleged moonshine drinker. FDR. He does not have to say, hey, look, martinis taste great. Let's get wasted, everybody. No, he can make an economic argument. Part of the Democrat platform when Roosevelt was running for office was if only given a chance, Americans might drink themselves into a balanced budget. Meaning that if we legalize this and tax it, we will have enough money to balance the budget. Exactly. We advocate the repeal of the 18th Amendment. Robert, when I hear that, I keep thinking that the applause sounds perfunctory. Like, no one, the audience doesn't sound very excited. That's because they're still sober. They've been sober for years. Not for long, though, because just a few weeks after FDR takes office, he signs a bill that legalizes beer. It's actually going to take the rest of the year to repeal the 18th Amendment. And think about how crafty this was. When FDR took office, the country was in the middle of its greatest economic crisis. I mean, banks were collapsing. There was a run on gold. FDR had to declare a four-day bank holiday just to stabilize the whole system. The nation was on the verge of panic. And FDR says, hey, everybody, have a drink. So it's sort of like if President Bush had decided to legalize marijuana the day after Lehman Brothers collapsed. Yeah, it would have taken the edge off the whole crisis. And, you know, when I was listening back to newsreels from 1933, that's basically what FDR did. He took the edge off this whole crisis. And all of a sudden, what was once a divisive moral issue became a brilliant business stimulus plan. The decisive vote of the 36th state against prohibition is happy news for the grain raisers of the United States and for many others throughout the land. With an eye on December 5th, work is being rushed in distilleries and bottling works. Thousands are being called back to work in plants of allied industries. At least 500,000 new jobs are predicted as a result of repeal. From keg and barrel factories, perhaps the most closely allied line, immediate benefits from repeal extend into almost every line of business and commerce. However... So there you have it, a brief economic history of prohibition. You have put together this entire economic puzzle, David, except there's still one piece missing. What? We don't know if FDR ever drank moonshine. Oh, actually, I have one more piece of tape for you. I kept making phone calls after I got back from Georgia, and I found this man named Tom Wentland. He's a local FDR buff and an actor. He told me he's actually played FDR. I have tried to put on the FDR voice from time to time. So so over the years, Tom has gone to gatherings of people who actually knew FDR. For some reason, the phone line here wasn't very good. So again, I had to shout. Did Franklin Delano Roosevelt ever buy moonshine when he was in Warm Springs? I don't know if he bought it. I know quite a bit was given to him. How do you know that? Uh, testimony by people who knew him. Uh, for example, Bum Phillips, who is a neighbor uh, here in the Warm Springs area, right? brought quarts of moonshine from a still over in the Flint River area. And the Baptist preacher was coming into the little White House at one time for a rather unannounced visit. And they had to hurry up and hide the the moonshine. During Prohibition? 
Oh, sure. Uh, wait, no, I have to be careful with that. Yes, yes, during Prohibition, because this, the scene that I just described was one that occurred in the late 1920s during Prohibition, yes. So that would have been in violation of the U.S. Constitution. Constitution well, right? yeah, it was an amendment to the Constitution, but it was... <laughs> that it, I don't believe that it was a constitutional crisis for an individual to drink it. It was a violation of the Constitution to manufacture and distribute it. <laughs> it sounds like you're trying to get him off the hook. <laughs> I think I'll go have a drink myself right now, right? I think I handled that beautifully. I picture FDR sitting on the porch of his little white house, uh, sipping a, a moonshine martini and you know, watching the sun go down over the trees and just hatching this brilliant plan. I'm going to run for president and make this legal? Exactly. <laughs> I actually found online a recipe for FDR's martini. Apparently he liked his cocktails dirty and wet with olive brine and plenty of vermouth. We will link to that recipe on our website, npr.org slash money. We'll also link to a related podcast of ours on another possibly inelastic good, marijuana, and also the This American Life piece where you can hear more from the charming Aunt Needy. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.